Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. Hi there. Welcome to the show. I am Kevin Owaki, and I'm here with my co-host, Miles. Hey, everyone. Today, we are honored to have as our guest the CTO of DigitalOcean, Julia Austin. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks for having me, guys. Cool. In addition to being CTO at DigitalOcean, uh, Julia is also a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School and is a, a mentor with Techstars and an advisor to several different startups. So uh, really looking forward to diving into her, her experiences today. Uh, Julia, why don't you tee us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and about DigitalOcean? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So as mentioned, I'm CTO at DigitalOcean. My background has been in tech for um, my entire career. Uh, first half of my career was more on the IT system side of things, which is a nice transition to be at DigitalOcean. Um, spent some time doing some consulting and then um, went to my first startup, Akamai Technologies, uh, when they were pre-IPO in the late 90s and uh, did a crazy ride there and uh, went from there, ran engineering there. And uh, from there, went to VMware. I joined VMware just after the EMC acquisition. There were about 800 employees in Palo Alto, and I was hired initially to just help them expand outside of Palo Alto and grow engineering teams at a time where things were really hard to do hiring in the Valley, and ended up growing not only our Boston office to uh, over 200 people, but uh, expanded uh, worldwide engineering, grew our innovation programs, our academic collaboration programs. Uh, bootstrapped a startup inside the company uh, that did a mobile hypervisor on ARM processors um, and a number of other things. I was there for eight years. I saw the company grow from 800 to 15,000 and 600 million to 6 billion during my tenure, along with three different CEOs. <laughs> it was a fun ride. Um, and when I left VMware, um, just ready to go do the next thing, I spent a lot of time in the startup community here in Boston. Um, really, really thrilled and excited about what's been going on here um, around uh, every possible vertical. It's been fantastic. Got plugged in with Techstars, and uh, that's how I met DigitalOcean. I started um, with DigitalOcean in January as an advisor uh, at a time where they were realizing uh, we were scaling at a level that uh, left engineering with a need for a lot more leadership and structure, and that evolved into a relationship that somehow convinced me to become CTO, which is terrific. And it was at the same time I joined Harvard Business School uh, to teach product management to second-year MBA students. And it's a nice complement to what I do at uh, DigitalOcean, which is fantastic. Uh, DigitalOcean, as you guys know, is a cloud for developers and for businesses. Um, we are a very elegant and simple and robust solution that developers love. Uh, we try to make it as easy and straightforward for you to build your applications on our platform. Right. And I'll just interject that StartupCTO.io is hosted on DigitalOcean. Fantastic. It better be. <laughs> if not, we would have to fix that. So that's great to hear. I'd like to ask you some questions about scale since you've seen companies grow tremendous scale throughout your career. Just to set the context for that, where was DigitalOcean in terms of number of people and number of engineers when you joined and, and now? Sure. So in the last uh, year, the company has grown um, from you know around 200 to we're nearing 300. Uh, so pretty rapid growth. Uh, a lot of that around the engineering team. Um, and for the engineering team, it's been uh, going from a very flat organization. When I first came on board, it was a couple directors reporting directly to the CEO. Um, and so we're starting to add some hierarchy, not a lot, um, but enough to put some more structure in the organization. 
but keeping in mind this this is a company who's just under five years old. So in terms of growth, um, to be close to 300 employees is pretty significant in a short period of time. Yeah, and you guys are killing it. I mean, I just know among developers, uh, DigitalOcean is one of the top cloud hosting providers. So that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, what sort of things do you see start breaking at the scale that DigitalOcean is at, and at the velocity DigitalOcean is scaling? Yeah, especially with this type of product and, and what we have to offer, the the biggest challenge is balancing how we manage performance and scale of our platform at the same time we're we're bringing new features to market, right? So that is when you start to try to rationalize, you know, what do we need to do to continue to keep our customers happy, uh, to keep uh, offering things that help the revenue numbers for us, um, but also ensure that we're, we continue to be stable and robust and, and customers who are using us are happy with us, right? So that balance gets harder. Um, and also that uh, classic scenario, we keep adding all these people, how come we can't just get more done? And usually it gets harder when you add more people because uh, there's more organizing, there's more prioritization, there's more communicating and the people element that has to come into play. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's just something to keep in mind as you continue to grow. Hmm. So, so practically, how, how do you balance scale, like the scale and performance of the, of the platform with, with adding new features? I mean, do you have like an up-to-date dashboard that tells you how you're doing on the KPIs on, on both of those metrics? They're in process. Yes, yeah, some are absolutely in place, and, and uh, we know exactly the metrics we need to meet. Um, some of the performance metrics that we are developing are just new to the industry still, um, believe it or not. So we're setting our own metrics in terms of what we think we need to hit. Um, certainly, we have a very uh, robust community, so we, we talk to our community um, and are very connected with our community and hear from them loud and clear what they expect. So dashboards that track uh, how we're doing performance-wise. Um, very, very tight relationship with our support team uh, to make sure that we're delivering the way our customers expect us to deliver, to, to also try to stay ahead of uh, the types of things that are happening that land in support and how we get upstream and make sure they don't end up in support to begin with. Um, and then, again, uh, we, we at DigitalOcean, are, one of our core values is love, which is... Uh, it's great. <laughs> we say it at DigitalOcean, we use the uh, the heart emoji more than anything, and it's true. It's uh, funny how often we use it in Slack and, and Twitter and everywhere in emails. And so we're always looking out for opportunities to give our customers love and prioritize that uh, and balance that with the performance side of things. And sometimes performance is love, right? Um, but sometimes it's just simple, elegant things we can do and deliver to our customers that uh, lets them know we hear them and what they need to run their businesses. Right. I mean, is that something that DigitalOcean thinks as a competitive advantage over, I'm thinking of like the AWSs of, of the world, uh, that sort of like high touch service and, and sort of like evoking an emotion of love in, in your customers? I wouldn't say so much it's high touch service as much as it's listening to the customers and focusing on simplicity, right? I think that's really our core okay. differentiator is uh, let's take these things that we know could normally be very challenging and difficult and complex to do and boil it down into the basics so that you can just get your job done. Uh, try to abstract away the complexity and, and, and give you what you need. Uh, simple, elegant tools, right? And I think that's what resonates with the developers. Developers like that we respect that and we're doing everything we can to just make their jobs easier so they can go code. And then I guess the other question I had about the, the scale that DigitalOcean is at is that you said uh, you said something really interesting at the top of the hour, which was that uh, you're moving from sort of a flat organization to one with a little bit more hierarchy. Could you tell me a little bit about the, the sort of challenges that, that come along with that sort of transition? Sure. I think it's, um, 
It's important to put some structure in place. And some teams have different approaches or ideas on whether you need to stay flat and let people be self-driven and self-directed. But there's a point. We're also very... Um, remote culture organization. Half of our uh, engineering team is remote. And so how we work and how we make sure we're setting priorities by adding a little bit more structure with managers and directors uh, is not because uh, we're trying to be a hierarchy and, and, and have some span of control there, but more to empower and enable teams. So that's uh, been a really nice thing at DigitalOcean is to say, let's give some teams some autonomy and leadership so they can just go get done what they need to get done instead of being caught up in a, in a process that requires approval after approval at every level, um, which could slow us down. Right. So enabling people, it sounds like, is really important and reducing the amount of bureaucracy in the organization. Right. And we do that both in hierarchy and in the way we build our software. So the mm-hmm. more microservices and APIs that we can use, you know, we are full stack, right? So back end versus the front end work that we do, there could be a lot of uh, intricacies and interdependencies that could slow us down, um, and they did. And, and the, uh, as we grew really fast, uh, there were some places where we, we built too much complexity internally that kept us from moving quickly. So that's been another big focus for me and my team in the last six months is how do we build more autonomous systems on the back end for what we're building? And, oh, by the way, most of what we build, we see that other developers in our community want to use that too. So we're really big on... Um, DigitalOcean is a customer of DigitalOcean, and if it doesn't work for us, it won't work for our customers. So uh, we think a lot about what would our customers want here, and does it make sense? And my mantra is keep it DO simple. Uh, everything I'm beating right now on the drum is DO simple. That's not DO simple. Let's make it DO mm-hmm. simple. It's, it's how we work. It's how we build software, and it's what our customers want. Okay. Keep it DigitalOcean simple. I'm going to remember that. Yeah. All right, Miles, uh, you want to get in a question or two? Uh, I was going to ask you, so you're scaling a lot. I guess you've only been there six months, but have you gotten much into hiring and what that's like for you guys as you are growing a large team? Yeah, so we're definitely hiring. I spent a lot of time interviewing. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's There's nothing like having an engineer come in uh, for an interview and telling me how much they love the product we build and how great we are. <laughs> it's nice to have a reputation like, we love you, oh, D.O., yeah, I'm happy to interview with you guys. You guys are awesome. Um, so I think what's what I find interesting is that the, the D.O. simple mantra also means the engineering problems are challenging and interesting. And for an engineer, that's exciting. So whether I'm interviewing an engineer or I'm interviewing a product manager or even you know salespeople, the fact that uh, what we have to say and how we approach uh, the cloud is is unique and cool uh, is exciting, and it's and it's a really great conversation with any candidate. Are there certain things that you look for when you're hiring uh, engineers? Yeah, so I I love when I see engineers who um, who understand that we're still in this rough and tumble startup world where there's some ambiguity. And there's some things we know and some things we don't know, or uh, we do a lot of MVPs and testing of, of uh, you know, sort of first pass of products to, to learn what our customers like and don't like or what works and doesn't work. And engineers that love that challenge and understand and appreciate that, um, there's no exact recipe to follow. And we're figuring some stuff out and we want to do things because they make sense to do, not just because everyone else is doing it. And so I look for qualities in engineers where uh, that excites them that they thrive in that type of environment, that they have examples of you know, projects or companies they work with where they've been in those situations and delivered something 
beautiful that their customers loved because um, because they listened to them and they and thought creatively. That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard that described as kind of a product oriented engineer. Is mm-hmm. that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I guess that's a good way of putting it. Certainly. Um, the other thing I really care about deeply is that I hire engineers who who like to collaborate with other engineers and who partner well with my product people. I don't believe in the wall between product and engineering, so it's a very most of my product managers are former engineers themselves. So, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's really cool. I um I know there are a lot of people that we've talked to that are very believe very strongly in the division between product managers and engineering, and it's not they feel like it's not really engineering's role to worry so much about the product. You know, it's kind of like here are your requirements, go build it, and you know we don't care. We've also talked to people that are kind of like, well, product managers can get eighty percent of the way there, but developers really have to have empathy for the user and understand the product in order to, you know, actually, when it comes down to implementation, build a great product. And uh, can you tell me a little more about how you feel on that subject? I mean, you just said you don't really believe in that separation, but how do you guys handle that in the the operations? Yeah, so some of it's very tactical. Uh, Very few meetings that I have talking about uh, product priorities or roadmaps that have both my engineering leaders and my product managers in the same room together. Um, often it's myself and our CEO, Ben, and I with, you know, uh, product managers and two engineering managers and a couple of lead engineers in a room when we're having a discussion about the direction a particular product could take. And we see that as a group effort. And ultimately, certainly Ben and I are making a decision when we have big decisions on which direction officially, but the conversation is very collaborative. Uh, so that's... Uh, First and foremost, but then some of it's very tactical in that we just uh, opened up a new floor in New York and I just blew everything up and said, I'm not having the product managers in this corner and my product designers in that corner and then the rest of engineering over there. We're going to put them all all together. (laughs) So uh, so my product managers are sitting at desks, you know, we have big open tables and they're sitting at desks next to the engineers that they work with. My product designers are also sitting at that same table. And they hierarchically, you know, they have their own managers, they have their own people they work for, but they're teams and they're building products together, and I want them as close to each other as possible. Huh. So it sounds like you're purposefully putting people with complementary skill sets uh, in, sim- in close proximity physically, but I'm assuming also in the org structure, there's sort of a proximity where people, you know, with people working with a, with a team like that? Yeah, we don't do full team uh, structure, so it's not structured in this you know particular team building droplets are all you know cross functionally together in one group. It's it's okay. still around domain expertise, uh, largely because they can build upon each other and their expertise. That's my belief, and I think having a manager who understands their world and their domain can take them and mentor them up a level. But structurally, how we get projects done is cross functional. So Got it. Where they sit together, how they work together, the Slack channels that they're on together. Uh, there's a lot of cross fertilization there. So, I mean, would you call that like sort of like a matrix structure? Yeah. I mean, accountability wise, uh, it's, it's still clear at the end of the day, the engineering managers holding the engineers accountable for whatever we committed to in a sprint. But that, that commitment has been made with the product manager. So it's not, you know, they're, they're jointly agreeing. This is what's going to get done in the next sprint. Um, it's not not a uh, throw it over the wall. Got it. 
It's actually a good segue into my next question, which is that, so as I said in the intro, uh, you're a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, and you're teaching a uh, two-semester product management course to second-year MBA students. And I think that you said at the top of the hour that it's sort of good reinforcement for your work at DigitalOcean and vice versa. Could you tell me some of the best practices that you teach in that course and how that applies to DigitalOcean? Yeah, Absolutely. So one of the firm uh, beliefs that I have and and my students get a chance to do in class is uh, building that MVP and testing that MVP as low fidelity as possible in the beginning to sanity test with your community or your customers before you go too far into the investment of building the product. So my students spend the first semester uh, doing all these sort of drafting and wireframing and and, um, hypotheses around what they're going to build. And then they do a lot of customer research and testing with wireframes, with manual processes that simulate what it might be like in tech, et cetera, um, before they get to build anything. In second semester, they actually build. I I have a fund, and I give them money, and they hire developers, and they build, uh, which is really cool. But at DigitalOcean, we do things similarly where uh, we've been experimenting with a number of things where uh, I've asked my engineers and my product managers what can we be doing either through Uh, storyboards that we put in front of customers or through alphas that we can release to a select set of customers who are willing to experiment and try things with us, uh, knowing that that's what it is so that we can get real feedback before we go too far down the line. Um, As much as we can do that at DigitalOcean, we try to. Wow, that's really great. I mean, I I love that um, you're taking the approach in your class of actually having your students build a product instead of just teaching the theory. You're, (laughs) You're working on the practice. I think that's great. Yeah, we're the uh, yeah, we're the sort of anti HBS case method, which uh, I love the case method, and I've taught uh, uh-huh. classes on the case method. But you know, again, my students are learning to be PMs by actually building product, and so it's nothing better than when a PM student says, you know, I gave this spec to my engineer that I hired, and he said it's going to take three weeks. And I think, you know, it was only going to be three days. And how did that happen? <laughs> Welcome to product management. Right. <laughs> You know, uh, so it's it's excellent that they get that real experience. It's very practical skills. It's all experiential learning, which I believe um, a lot in. And the students that graduate from this course either go on to be product founders or product managers at businesses, and they're quite successful. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like it really helps them build empathy with people that aren't their role, which is awesome when they're working with. 100%. Yeah, that's that's super awesome. Uh, what, uh, do you, do you teach any, or I guess, you know, use a digital ocean, any specific kind of software processes, uh, in terms of building, uh, agile waterfall, you know, are, are you subscriber believer in any of those philosophies or kind of what's your take on how yeah. you guys build software? I don't know how many companies actually have one methodology that is rigid and strict. Uh, I think a lot of it depends on the use case. And certainly, again, if we're full stack, what you do on the back end for things that are hardware dependent, et cetera, is going to be very different than how you're dealing with um, customer facing front end development. So at DigitalOcean, we do follow, I would say, uh, elements of agile in that we do stand ups, we do sprints, we manage things with a backlog and, um, and track our increments as we go. So we adopt a lot of the, the method, um, and it helps us keep moving forward and getting things out that we can ship as fast as possible. And that's a consistency, going back to the scaling topic, it's uh, something in terms of building consistency there is just still relatively new to the business. Okay. 
I'm, I'm curious if where the decisions about about process land. Uh, I, I've been on teams where the ops team is using sort of a flavor of Kanban and uh, some of the app development teams are doing longer sprints. Uh, where does the decision making for like what process uh, a team is on reside in DigitalOcean? Depends on the breadth and nature. I always I hate to answer things with it depends, but it does. So we have some teams who are fairly autonomous in what they're building and, and things can be somewhat discreet. And then in that case, I leave it up to the product manager and engineering manager who are partnered to come up with the process that works best for them. Okay. We've been pretty consistent, especially on the front end with that. Uh, for teams where there's a lot of complexity and it cuts across a lot, of teams, especially on the back end side for us on the hardware side, uh, networking, storage, those types of things. Uh, it's more, uh, I would say, at a leadership level on what's going to work best for us because it has to be managed. We have a lot of uh, intricacies. We have a lot of areas even that are out of our control around data centers and hardware providers where we have to set that process from the top. Okay. And from the top, I would say for me and my VP of engineering uh, in partnership with our heads of infrastructure. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit to talking about your role as a mentor at Techstars and an advisor to, according to your LinkedIn profile, it seems like half a dozen to a dozen uh, different startups. What is it that you love about working with really, really early stage and seed stage startups? Um, God, so much. <laughs> so I love early stage startups are fascinating because mm-hmm. they're uh, dealing with all the things Everything from the tech that they're going to use, the processes they're going to choose, how to work with a board, how to raise capital, how to deal with personal issues, personnel issues, hiring. Uh, it's amazing. And, and with young founders who have, don't have a lot of experience in that area, it's especially fun um, because they realize pretty quickly it's not just as long as they build a great product, I'm good. <laughs> it's so much more than that. Right. I've, uh, I've been through this enough times where... Um, I take great satisfaction when I get, you know, a text from a CEO at 10 p.m. who's dealing with an employee issue that never in a million years they ever thought they would have to deal with, um, or a uh, board member who all of a sudden is asking for something they don't know how to deliver. And, you know, for them, it's, why didn't anybody tell me I'd have to do things like this? Mm-hmm. And uh, being able to help them there and saying, okay, here's how you should approach that. Uh, let's think about it. What, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? And guiding them through their own decision. I, I never... Mm-hmm. dictate what they should do. I just try to walk them through uh, the process and the decision. And I love when, you know, two, three days later, I'll get a text back saying, I nailed it. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, we, we got done. Um, right. That's great. And so seeing them move the needle and helping them understand that, you know, it's a lot and, and have empathy and uh, speak with credibility because I've been there. Sure. To- to get them to the next level, you know, it's nothing like a, a somebody that I've worked with who just raised their first A round or had a successful yeah. exit. And it's not about me getting shares or whatever. It's really about seeing their satisfaction and what they accomplished. Right. Well, I can tell just from your answer that you're so enthusiastic about seed stage startups, <laughs> and I think that 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 sure helps a lot when you're digging into some of these thornier issues. Have you seen any patterns that allow an early stage startup to sort of bend the learning curve when it comes to all of the issues that you just described? Yeah, one pattern, and I, I coined a phrase that I use a lot with my with my startup founders, is uh, as you start to build your company, you need to think about what, what the have-to-dos, want-to-dos, and good-ats are. 
And when you're starting out a company and there's just a few of you, you're doing all the have-to-dos, whether you want to do it or whether you're good at it. And as you start to continue in your journey, there'll be times where you say, like, all right, I'm good at doing the finances, but I hate it. And so one of my first hires after my Series A is going to be a finance person, right? Um, I've had lots of founders who are technical who say, you know, as long as I can still code once a day, I'm happy, or once a week, I'm happy. And the harsh reality of you're a CEO, you can't do that anymore. And that's right. really hard. And so sometimes it's the, the pattern of I uh, love the idea of starting a company. I love leading. I love um, having people use what I built and love it. But I, the role of CEO is not for me. Uh, I've seen that a lot. And um, I've seen the, uh, the creative side and, and how they maintain and keep that creative side uh, going when they're trying to just run a business. Uh, that reality of, oh, you know, where do I find time for that? Uh, it's been a challenge, but uh, it's doable. And figure out, again, if, all right, so if you want to do it and you're good at it and it has to get done, how do we get you there? And where do we augment you on the things that also have to get done that you don't want to do uh, or you're not good at it? Like you, you might have to do sales and, and um, you can do sales, but you're not very good at it. Um, how do we identify those things and get you the right people so that you still have the time to do the stuff you love? Right. I think that's, wow, that's, that's a really great answer. That's so comprehensive. Um, so if I'm a startup, uh, if I'm a startup CEO or a startup CTO, um, how do I decide what skills I, I need to build myself versus which ones we can, we can hire someone or I, I can delegate them to someone else? Yeah. The way I would think about that in terms of how you divide your time is what are your core competencies that are going to make or break this business, right? If you're, if you're building a, a sales-related product, uh, you, you kind of need to know the, the domain and what it means to be in sales, right? Uh, or if it's, I know, I understand all the algorithms and everything that go on in the back end, but I've never been a salesperson in my life. Let me go hire somebody who knows, who, who knows that domain or who has been in those shoes before who can help me understand it. So I think understanding your domain and knowing what, how deep into that domain right. you need to be aware of is, is a big part of it. And I would say anything on the um, anything on the sort of running the business part of things, unless it's just a innate talent you happen to have, uh, which some people find out they do. You know, surprise! I have I actually am good at finance, or I'm actually good at HR, or whatever. Uh, those are things that are uh, not hard to get and really important to do well. Mm-hmm. So don't screw up finance. Don't screw up your people stuff. Make sure people get paid and they they have a great culture and, and good right. things. Good people. Uh, anything operational, uh, don't try to become the expert in that. There are great experts out there uh, and, and, and people you can trust to do it well for you so you can focus on the domain. Right. That's actually a good uh, a good segue into a question that Miles and I were talking about in our pregame for this conversation that we wanted to ask you. So if I'm an engineer that's on like the VP engineering or CTO track, or let's say I have it. Uh, aspirations to be a great CTO or VP engineering one day. Do you think it's worth investing in getting an, uh, a master's degree or an MBA? I think that having business acumen and understanding how businesses run is important. And I think you can augment that in different ways. You can do exec ed programs. You can go back and get your MBA to really go all in. I, I think if you're going to do that, and this is not a plug for HBS, but just do it. Just just dive in and get it done as opposed to over a long haul night school or weekends or whatever. There's some good programs out there, too, for like weekend uh, boot camps, you know, MBA boot camps and stuff. But uh, go into it for, with a program that isn't just about the piece of paper or the, the – um, 
reputation of the school, but in a program that complements what it is you're going to go do. So if you think you're going to be in a business, for example, that's going to do uh, a lot of international things or you have an interest in international business or, or global businesses, you know, find a program that will introduce you or have an element to it that involves that type of thing. Like we have a program here where students go abroad mm-hmm. and, and actually solve a business problem in, a, in another country. Um, so whether or not I think it's required is really about who you are and how you think you need to grow uh, and, right. and um, what you're missing, right? I think there's a lot of things where... Uh, if you're going to run a business, you should understand how, how P&Ls and, and, and finance works, right? Not because you're going to be a CFO, but because you're going to have one and you need to understand what they're going to do, right? right. Um, so I think there are certainly things with a master's degree that are super important. I think a rich program that gives you exposure to a lot of different elements of running a business, especially um, if it's uh, at a VP or a CTO level, is, it can be very helpful. Okay. For startups specifically, um, do you, I mean, a, a lot of MBAs, uh, at least I know, uh, like startup culture, they kind of see an MBA as like, great, if I wanted to go work for like a big company, right? But um, how valuable do you think like an MBA is to like starting an early stage company? And, and kind of follow up question is like, are those things that have to be kind of uh, solidify it through a program or certificate or something, or is that something that can be learned through experience? Yeah. So again, I'm going to be totally biased, but uh, if you go do an MBA program like ours here, where we have a very, very strong uh, faculty, a lot of practitioners like me who actually teach on entrepreneurship, now I'm part of the entrepreneurship unit here at HBS, and we invest a lot in students who are planning to start their own businesses or already have. You know, I have. 36 students in my class right now, and at least 25% of them have already started a business or plan to when they graduate. And they're honing their skills around uh, challenges, raising capital, um, hiring, building product like they do in my class. Um, We have a great course here that I uh, helped write a case for this semester on founder's dilemmas. Like, what are the things that you're going to run into as a founder after you start your business that you might not expect? Some of the things I mentioned before. The human element things, the mm-hmm. tricky things around venture and board members. And so if you find a program that has uh, the opportunity to learn all about entrepreneurship and not just launching your, your venture, but actually running your venture and scaling your venture, we actually have a new class this semester on uh, scaling, our next semester, scaling your technology venture, uh, which is started by the guy who, the professor who started my class that I, I now teach. And it's all about scale. And that's invaluable. Uh, so, yeah, does, is it helpful to learn on the job? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of my experience comes from direct on-the-job experience. I also have my master's in, from uh, Boston University but uh, in business. But um, a lot of what I, I think I have in my toolkit is, uh, is from experience. And a lot of what I got when I was in grad school got me ready for that. Um, but I think they sure. complemented all. Does that make sense? I think yeah. so. Um, and I love what you said earlier about... Um, how when you choose a school, it's not about just the reputation of the school or the degree that you're going to get, but getting a program that gives you experience in what you want to do. I, I, I guess I, I'm curious about your continuous learning approach at Digital DigitalOcean uh, for more like technical skills and keeping uh, your engineers current with the state of state of technology. How do you think about continuous learning for your team at DigitalOcean? Uh, great question. So continuous learning at DO is. Uh 
it's been it's what was wonderful to come into the company and see what's already been in place, and then I've added a few things to it. So we have uh, DigitalOcean University, which is available to our community, but we also use it uh, internally, and we have regular um, learning streams that people can sign up for if they want to learn, and, and including business, so not just technical things, but business uh, discussions and leadership discussions. Um, we just started a series called Munch and Learn, which is. Uh, twice, I think it's every other week now, and we have different engineers present on topics, uh, not just engineers, that's not fair, uh, product managers, salespeople, talking about their domains, and so it could be, we and we give them ratings, like this is very technical versus this is, anybody can come and we'll understand it, um, and we try to make sure that the expertise that we have in-house is shared and that people are getting up to speed uh, on things, and then we have a great uh, reimbursement program for people who want to take classes outside of DO to get better at a particular technology or, or, um, or skill in general. It could be public speaking. It could be anything. I was looking up how to do something. It's something to do with Postgres and Ubuntu the other day. Just looking up a tutorial on how to do, uh, how to do something. And DigitalOcean was like the first thing that came up when I Googled yeah. it. So cool. <laughs> Our tutorials are amazing. In fact, one of my students I met this semester, she said, oh, you're at DigitalOcean. I use you guys all the time. I said, really? You have droplets? And she said, oh, no, no, no. I just go to your community site for all your tutorials. They're amazing. <laughs> it's just so great. Uh, yeah, our tutorials are fantastic. And um, again, it's a, a big part of our growth is because we support our community, not just with our technology, but the content is, is terrific, right? It's great. Yeah, you guys are kind of the my go-to example whenever I talk about content marketing to people. Is like, you know, DigitalOcean came almost out of nowhere. And now I think someone told me, I don't know if it's, you would know better than me, but it's like number two in terms of cloud provider behind AWS. Um, big, like a lot, big partly to do with content marketing. I mean, you guys crushed it. In that yeah, area. we're doing all right. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Uh, well, Kevin, do you have any other questions before we uh, kind of move into our standard uh, wrap-up questions? No, let's let's do it. Let's go. Cool. So, Julia, what is your favorite war story? Yeah. So, uh, this is my favorite story, and a lot of people at Dio have heard this story before. Um, was when I was at Akamai, and when I had joined Akamai, uh, it was really crazy town. Uh, not no structure, no process. We were patching. The internet, which was still very, very new, uh, all day, all night, weekends, everyone had access to Root, uh, pretty much could do whatever you wanted there. It was kind of frightening. Um, and for me, it was my first time being in a very uh, hardcore engineering environment with computer scientists um, that I could barely relate to. It was a very big change for me career-wise. Um, and I was brought in as their very first release manager, not even really knowing what that was. Um, but knowing that I was trying to, uh, I was charged with trying to put a process in place that was reasonable. And the CTO and founder of the business um, pushed me to put something in place that was scalable and light. And this was before Agile was really a thing. It existed, but but no one was really using it as a mainstream process. And um, I was trying to put in this weekly stand-up-y kind of thing with our engineers so that we were careful about what we were rolling out and when and not breaking the internet. And it was really hard. Uh, just asking people to meet once a week was really hard back then. And <laughs> they were like, they, we just want to code all day and we just want to push stuff out all day. And, um, and trying to get them to buy into a process that, that made that a little bit more manageable was, was very hard um, until we broke the Internet. And I tell this story all the time. As, uh, we called it Black Monday, Gray Tuesday. And so Black Monday was when we literally took every note of the Akamai network down. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of other Internet providers out there. We were it. 
And so it was nothing like sitting in a room with uh, with your CEO and all the VPs and just being yelled at for a good two or three hours about how we could never do that again. And we literally stopped serving Microsoft and CNN and some other major brands. They were just out, gone. That was bad. (laughs) It was really bad. And the root cause, um, my my colleagues there would would need to keep me honest, but I'm pretty sure the root cause was an engineer who just decided to push something out in the middle of the night without any kind of regression testing or anything. And it just Mm -hmm. broke everything. And so so good news, we fixed it. We put the internet uh, back together again. And then Gray Tuesday was the next day where we realized we hadn't flushed all the caches and um, started serving content that was munged and mixed up with the wrong providers. So uh, web properties, you were clicking on, you were getting another web properties content. Oh, no. It was awesome. (laughs) So so why do I always tell this story? I tell this story because, you know, Akamai went on to be a great success. Uh, It was an opportunity for me to put some process in place by unfortunately having things break really badly to, to realize, you know, maybe it's time to put some process in place so that never happens again. Um, but it also tells the story of how a company can rise from something that could have been devastating for us as a business and learn from it and, um, and not go over, like we didn't swing the pendulum overly the other way and make it overly processed because of it. Right. But okay, let's be reasonable. Let's take this seriously and let's do it right. And, um, and move forward. And we did. And the process that I put in place back then is still the core of the process they have today. And um, and they don't think they've ever taken the internet down since then. <laughs> so that's my favorite story. That's actually so. Like one constant, we ask this question to all of our guests, and one constant that I'm starting to derive from all of these questions is that when you're in the middle of this war story, it can feel like you're in this black hole of just negativity, and you're really fucking up. And and in in the constant is that a couple of weeks and months down the road, then it, it's just a blip on the radar. I mean, it's something you recover from and that you pull yourself out of and the business can still be successful, not just in spite of it, but you can probably learn from it and make the business even more successful. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's, I think, again, it's how, how you decide to handle it and how you decide to work forward uh, with it is everything, right? We could have People could have been fired. People could have quit because it just felt so awful to, to have done what we did. Um, no one got fired. Uh, we really It was a rallying point for us as a team. One of the issues we had there was uh, we had an East Coast, West Coast uh, rift where you know, the Silicon Valley guys were the smart you know, Silicon Valley tech guys and the, and the people in, in, in Cambridge were all the MIT nerds who didn't know anything about business. That's what I was, and I was the release manager in the middle of all that saying, can we all just get along, please? <laughs> And this was a rallying cry for us. It really was a, um, a moment for us to say, we love this company, we believe in this company and, and what it can be, and so let's get over all our stuff and just do the right thing. And, right. I, and there are a lot of companies who don't do that. You know, they hang their head low and they shut up you know, and, and, and fire people and, and, and they right. don't move I think it's interesting that you said that no one got fired. Uh, is, uh, do you believe that retrospectives and postmortems should be blameless? Uh, is that an aspiration that you have? Yes, for sure. I, you know, certainly if someone is insubordinate and does something that is uh, malicious or, or uh, ill-willed against the company or our customers or anything gets fired, right? Okay. I, you know, I, I, I don't ever want to be in a situation where I've had to deal with someone like that. Unfortunately, I've only had maybe a couple in my career. 
but I think postmortems, the whole point of them is to say, what can we do better? Even if we had an incredibly successful release, we released Black Storage over the, the summer at DigitalOcean. It was the first new product we delivered in a really long time. It was very painful in terms of learning how to go from one to two and uh, at a bigger scale than we'd ever been at and learn about everything from how we were going to price it to uh, how we would support it and, and never mind building it. And uh, it was hard and painful because it was a real stretch for the company to go to that next thing. And the retro really was about, okay, now we know how to do this. We've done it a second time. It's been a long time since we've done something new. A lot of opportunities for improvement. And now I have this robust roadmap with, gosh, like four or five new things that are going to come out in the next three quarters. And I feel like a lot we learned from the block storage release is now going into those releases and they're going to be a hell of a lot better. And, and there's there's rarely one single person ever, or team for that matter, when you're building something like that, that can own a particular failure or success, right? It all comes together. Uh, everyone's dependent on each other in some way. I have a bunch of questions about that release, but I think that we have to move on to our <laughs> next and, and last final question. That is, uh, what are your engineering values? So my fundamental values are... Don't put process in for the sake of process. So process that makes sense, that's light and elegant so that we can get our shit done, right? Um, that keep customers happy. That uh, value of collaboration, and it sounds like motherhood and apple pie, but teamwork and going back to that other point of we all have to do this together. It's not just one person's job or one team's in a job. Mm -hmm. It's... it's uh, uh, even if you're building a website that's super simple, there's some interdependency there. You know, it could be with your finance team. It could be anything, but you're building it together. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a big part of it. And then um, another engineering-specific core value is the customer experience. It's very specific to DO. It's about some simplicity, right? So, um, all right, you've built it. Did, is it a, a hack that's ugly, or is it really something that resonates with our customers, right? Does it make sense for us? Uh, would we use it as developers? Does it does it feel like it should feel? And that's very subjective. You can't build a dashboard for that. <laughs> um, but people know it. You know, they asked me in the beginning at, at Dio when I kept saying Dio simple, Dio simple. Uh, what is that? Can you write that down? And I said nope, because you'll know it. <laughs> we'll all know it because it's going to be a bunch of iterations, and and you'll just see something and say that does that doesn't feel simple to me. Um, you shouldn't have to measure that. So that's part of my engineering value. And that's, again, not just the customer's experience and that it's simple, but uh, a process between two teams or between two engineers or between a product manager and a salesperson and a marketing person should still feel DO simple. Let's not overcomplicate things. Okay. Those are some great values. Mm -hmm. uh, I like uh, DO simple much better than the, uh, the KISS acronym. Uh, <laughs> I think that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's getting a nice ring to it, right? <laughs> yeah. Stupid, right? Also, it doesn't insult you at the end of it, you know? <laughs> so that's a that big positive yeah. right there. Yeah. All right. Well, um, final bonus question. Uh, where can our listeners find you and find DigitalOcean online? So you can always follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Austin Fish. That's a, a podcast for another day on where that name came from. And DigitalOcean.com for our website. Okay, great. And really quick, I think that some of our audience may be job hunting and probably have the skills that you're looking for. Uh, what is DigitalOcean looking for in terms of engineering skill sets right now? 
uh, full stack, so back end, front end, um, low level system stuff, uh, performance engineers. Uh, we're looking for all of it, product managers. Okay, all the things. Already. All the things, exactly. Awesome. Alrighty, well, thanks so much for being on the show, Julia. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was really fun talking with you guys. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupctoio. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.